0: Welcome to Trinity Rep Radio Theater, a production of Trinity Repertory Company and WRNI. Trinity Rep Radio Theater is a monthly exploration of dramatic literature featuring members of Trinity Rep's resident acting company. This program is devoted to the comedy of James Thurber. I'm your host, Bob C., and joining me is Kurt Columbus, Trinity Reps Artistic Director. Hello, Bob. And three members of Trinity's resident acting company, William Dom Kaler, Janice Duclos, and Barbara Meek. Welcome, everyone. Thank Hello, you, Bob. Bob. Thank well, Kurt, tell us about today's program.
1: Well, Bob, um, we wanted to do something comic for the coming of spring. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we had recently stumbled across a bunch of James Thurber short stories. Um, uh, collected most famously in a a book called Thurber Carnival. And James Thurber is one of the great American humorists of the 20th century. Um, He's known for mostly a story called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty and for a story that we're going to read today called The Night the Bed Fell. Um, But he is just a prolific writer. He's a cartoonist with these wonderful cartoons that are instantly recognizable, and we're going to talk more about that later later. Um, Born in 1894, grew up in Ohio, worked as a newspaper reporter. And most of his work was published in The New Yorker between 1927 and 1960. Um, We have three stories to share today uh, from the 1930s and the 1940s. One is called The Catbird Seat. The other is called A Couple of Hamburgers. (laughs) And the one that we're going to start with is called
0: The Night the Bed Fell. Well, let's hear The Night the Bed Fell by James Thurber, read by William Domkailer.
2: I suppose that the high-water mark of my youth in Columbus, Ohio, was The Night the Bed Fell on My Father. It makes a better recitation, unless, as some friends of mine have said, one has heard it five or six times, than it does a piece of writing, for it is almost necessary to throw furniture around, shake doors, bark like a dog to lend the proper atmosphere and verisimilitude to what is admittedly a somewhat incredible tale. Still, it did take place. It happened then that my father had decided to sleep in the attic one night to be away where he could think. My mother opposed the notion strongly because she said the old wooden bed up there was unsafe. It was wobbly and the heavy headboard would crash down on Father's head in case the bed fell and kill him. (coughs) There was no dissuading him, however, and at a quarter past ten he closed the attic door behind him and went up the narrow, twisting stairs. We later heard ominous creakings as he crawled into bed. Grandfather, who usually slept in the attic bed when he was with us, had disappeared some days before. On these occasions, he was usually gone six or eight days and returned growling and out of temper with the news that the Federal Union was run by a parcel of blockheads and that the Army of the Potomac didn't have any more chance than a fiddler's bitch. We, we had visiting us at this time a nervous first cousin of mine named Briggs Beale, who believed that he was likely to cease breathing when he was asleep. It was his feeling that if he were not awakened every hour during the night, he might die of suffocation. He had been accustomed to setting an alarm clock to ring at intervals until morning, but I persuaded him to abandon this. He slept in my room, and I told him that I was such a light sleeper that if anybody quit breathing in the same room with me, I would wake instantly. He tested me the first night, which I had suspected he would by holding his breath after my regular breathing had convinced him I was asleep. I was not asleep, however, and called to him. This seemed to allay his fears a little, but he took the precaution of putting a glass of spirits of camphor on a little table at the head of his bed. In case I didn't arouse him until he was almost gone, he said, he would sniff the camphor, a powerful reviver, uh, Briggs was not the only member of his family who had his crotchets. Old Aunt Melissa Beale, who could whistle like a man with two fingers in her mouth, suffered under the premonition that she was destined to die on South High Street because she'd been born on South High Street and married on South High Street. Then there was Aunt Sarah Schof, who never went to bed at night without the fear that a burglar was going to get in and blow chloroform under her door through a tube. To avert this calamity, for she was in greater dread of anesthetics than of losing her household goods, she always piled her money, her silverware, and other valuables in a neat stack just outside her bedroom with a note, reading, This is all I have. Please take it and do not use your chloroform as this is all I have. Aunt Gracie Shove also had a burglar phobia, but she met it with more fortitude. She was confident that burglars had been getting into her house every night for 40 years. The fact that she never missed anything was to her no proof to the contrary. She always claimed that she scared them off before they could take anything by throwing shoes down the hallway. When she went to bed, she piled where she could get at them handily all the shoes there were about her house. Five minutes after she had turned off the light, she would sit up in bed and say, Hark! Her husband, who had learned to ignore the whole situation as long ago as 1903 would either be sound asleep or pretend to be sound asleep. In either case, he would not respond to her tugging and pulling, so that presently she would arise, tiptoe to the door, open it slightly and heave a shoe down the hall in one direction and its mate down the hall in the other direction. Some nights she threw them all, some nights only a couple of pair. But I'm straying from the remarkable incidents that took place during the night that the bed fell on father by midnight. We were all in bed. The layout of the rooms and the disposition of their occupants is important to an understanding of what later occurred. In the front room upstairs, just under Father's attic bedroom, were my mother and my brother Herman, who sometimes sang in his sleep, usually marching through Georgia or onward Christian soldiers. Uh, Briggs Beale and myself were in a room adjoining this one, My brother Roy was in a room across the hall from ours. Our our, our bull terrier, Rex, slept in the hall. My bed was an army cot, one of those affairs which are made wide enough to sleep on comfortably only by putting up flat with the middle section, the two sides which ordinarily hang down like the sideboards of a drop-leaf table. When these sides are up, It is perilous to roll too far toward the edge, for then the cot is likely to tip completely over, bringing the whole bed down on top of one with a tremendous banging crash. This, in fact, is precisely what happened. About two o'clock in the morning, it was my mother who, in recalling the scene later, first referred to it as the night the bed fell on your father. Always a, a deep sleeper. Slow to arouse, I had lied to Briggs. I was at first unconscious of what had happened when the iron cot rolled me onto the floor and toppled over on me. It left me still warmly bundled up and unhurt, for the bed rested above me like a canopy. Hence I did not wake up, only reached the edge of consciousness and went back. The racket, however, instantly awakened my mother in the next room, who came to the immediate conclusion that her worst dread was realized— The big wooden bed upstairs had fallen on father. She therefore screamed, Let's go to your poor father! It was this shout, rather than the noise of my cot falling, that awakened Herman in the same room with her. He thought that mother had become, for no apparent reason, hysterical. You're all right, Mama, he shouted, trying to calm her. They exchanged, shout for shout, for perhaps ten seconds, Let's go to your poor father! And you're all right! That woke up Briggs! By this time I was conscious of what was going on in a vague way, but did not yet realize that I was under my bed instead of on it. Briggs, awakening in the midst of loud shouts of fear and apprehension, came to the quick conclusion that he was suffocating and that we were all trying to bring him out. With a low moan, he grasped the glass of camphor at the head of his bed, and instead of sniffing it, poured it over himself. The room reeked of camphor. (laughs) Choked Briggs like a drowning man, for he'd almost succeeded in stopping his breath under the deluge of pungent spirits. He leaped out of bed, groped toward the open window, but he came up against one that was closed. With his hand, he beat out the glass, and I could hear it crash and tinkle on the alleyway below. It was at this juncture that I, in trying to get up, had the uncanny sensation of feeling my bed above me. Foggy with sleep, I now suspected in my turn that the whole uproar was being made in a frantic endeavor to extricate me from what must be an unheard of and perilous situation. Get me out of this, I bawled! Get me out! I think I had the nightmarish belief that I was entombed in a mine. (laughs) Gasped Briggs, floundering in his camphor now by this time my mother still shouting pursued by herman still shouting was trying to open the door to the attic in order to go up and get my father's body out of the wreckage the door was stuck however wouldn't yield her frantic pulls on it only added to the general banging and confusion roy and the dog were up now the one shouting questions the other barking <laughs> father farthest away and soundest sleeper of all had by this time been awakened by the battering on the attic door, he decided that the house was on fire. Uh, I'm coming. I'm coming, he wailed in a slow, sleepy voice. It took him many minutes to regain full consciousness. My mother, still believing that he was caught under the bed, detected in his I'm coming the mournful, resigned note of one who was preparing to meet his maker. He's She shouted, I'm all right. Briggs yelled to reassure her, I'm all right. He still believed that it was his own closeness to death that was worrying Mother. I found at last a light switch in my room, unlocked the door, and Briggs and I joined the others at the attic door. The dog, who never did like Briggs, jumped for him assuming that he was the culprit in whatever was going on. Roy had to throw Rex and hold him. We could hear Father crawling out of bed upstairs. Roy pulled the attic door open with a mighty jerk, and Father came down the stairs, sleepy and irritable, but safe and sound. My mother began to weep when she saw him. Rex began to howl. What in the name of God is going on here? Asked father. The situation was finally put together, like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle. Father caught a cold from prowling around in his bare feet, but there were no other bad results. I'm glad, said mother, who always looked on the bright side of things, that your grandfather wasn't here.
0: The Night the Bed Fell by James (laughs) Thurber, read by William Dom Kaler, here on Trinity Rep Radio Theatre. Great barking.
2: <laughs> Great barking. Thank you. Uh, Take some, three years at Juilliard. Yes, I was going to say barking. a real actor needs yeah. to
0: train to bark.
2: <laughs>
0: well, well. Uh, an incredible piece of writing, and uh, when you listen to that, you, you realize that he didn't waste one word in telling this story. Oh.
2: Phenomenal, Or one bark.
0: And, <laughs> and the way he
3: talks about it being a better recitation than a piece of writing, right. it really does lend itself to being being spoken. Mm-hmm. It's really fun.
1: Well, he, you know, it's uh, interesting, Bob. You, there are so many layers to this story because I listen to it and I think, wow, it's kind of like all of us who have trouble sleeping. There's always <laughs> a huge drama in our minds about why we can't sleep. And so there—it's the, a whole house of insomniacs. <laughs> Um, to the extent that the father uh, insists, that he's like, nope, I'm going to sleep upstairs. I'm going to sleep upstairs. You just know that the unquiet on the lower level of the house is so profound that he's like, I'd rather sleep in the bed that might kill me. I'd rather sleep up there.
0: <laughs> I suspect the father knew about these uh, foibles of the relatives who are staying there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the ones in his own family, too, I imagine. Well, I just
3: noticed a foible. Why is my brother... His brother Herman in the
1: same room as his mother. Yeah. Don't go there.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> With the, this is what's great. This is, you know, Bob, um, uh, this is a semi-autobiographical story. So uh, there's a lot of real Thurber in here. Mm-hmm. And he clearly had a very interesting childhood. I mean, one of the things that we found out about him is um, he he was, uh, lost an eye at an early age. Because he was playing William Tell, I think, with his brother with his Roy, brother, right. as a matter of fact, and his brother <laughs> shot out his eye. So he was he was um, progressively uh, going blind through his whole life mm. from a childhood injury. So he clearly had a very interesting childhood that is in this story. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the term fictional
0: autobiography because <laughs> when you read the story, you know that some of this is real. <laughs> you, know, you can't make it all up, but oh, it's absolutely really marvelous what he does with it.
3: I love the little details he throws in, like the fact that uh, Herman usually sang in his sleep, usually marching through Georgia. <laughs> yeah. <outward>. yeah. <laughs> <It's outrageous. laughs>
2: Or Herman. It, it, it tells you a lot me, about Herman. Reminds me of a, a line from that uh, Tom Waits song, which is "You're innocent when you dream." You know, you're you're so vulnerable. At yeah. night and when sleep time that when something uh, bad is going to happen it 's ten times worse yeah. because uh, and and, and it 's just you go subconsciously right to that level when you re- read or hear this story yeah yeah <laughs> you 're wide open
1: he <laughs> is he is such a remarkable observer of the human condition and and puts the 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 realistic and the fantastical right next to each other and uh, you know in in all of his stories um which is sort of a good segue, Bob, if I can, to the next story. Mm. May we do that? Sure. Uh, We're going to listen to a story called The Catbird Seat. Now, we recorded this previously with Barbara Meek and with two other members of our resident acting company, Tim Crow and Rachel Warren. Um, This story was first published in The New Yorker in 1942, and it's the story of an unlikely white-collar hero.
0: Let's hear the Catbird Seat by James Thurber with Kurt Columbus, Timothy Crow, Barbara Meek, and Rachel Warren.
4: Mr. Martin bought the pack of camels on Monday night in the most crowded cigar store on Broadway. It was theater time, and seven or eight men were buying cigarettes. The clerk didn't even glance at Mr. Martin, who put the pack in his overcoat pocket and went out. If any of the staff at F&S had seen him buy the cigarettes, they would have been astonished, for it was generally known that Mr. Martin did not smoke, and never had. No one saw him. It was just a week to the day since Mr. Martin had decided to rub out Mrs. Old Jean Barrows. The term rub out pleased him. It suggests
5: nothing more than the uh, correction of an error.
4: In this case, an error of Mr. Fitwiler. Mr. Martin had spent each night of the past week working out his plan and examining it. As he walked home now, he went over it again. For the hundredth time, he resented the element of imprecision, the margin of guesswork that entered into the business. The project
5: is casual, yet bold. The risks are considerable. Something might go wrong Anywhere along the line.
4: And therein lay the cunning of his scheme. No one would ever see it in the cautious, painstaking hand of Irwin Martin, head of the filing department at FS, of whom Mr. Fitweiler had once said
1: Man is fallible, but Martin isn't.
4: No one would see his hand. That is, unless it were caught in the act. Sitting in his apartment, drinking a glass of milk, Mr. Martin reviewed his case against Mrs. Algene Barrows as he had every night for seven nights. He began at the beginning.
5: Her quacking voice and braying laugh first profaned the halls of F and S on March 7, 1941.
4: Mr. Martin had a head for dates. Old Roberts, the personnel chief, had introduced her as the newly appointed special advisor to the president of the firm, Mr. Fitweiler.
5: The woman appalled me instantly, but I didn't show it.
4: He had given her his dry hand, a look of studious concentration, and a faint smile. Mrs. Olgene Barrows had looked at the papers on his desk and asked... Well, are you lifting the ox cart out of the ditch? As Mr. Martin recalled that moment over his milk, he squirmed slightly. She had, for almost two years now, baited him. In the halls, in the elevator, even in his own office.
5: Into which she romped now and then like a circus horse, constantly shouting these silly questions at me.
6: Are you lifting the ox cart out of the ditch? Are you tearing up the pea patch? Are you hollering down the rain barrel? Are you scraping around the bottom of the pickle barrel? Are you sitting in the catbird seat...
4: It was Joey Hart, one of Mr. Martin's two assistants, who had explained what the gibberish meant.
5: Uh, she must be a Dodger fan. Uh, Red Barber announces the Dodger games over the radio. Uh, he uses those expressions. Picked them up down south. Tearing up the pea patch means going on a rampage. Sitting in the catbird seat means sitting pretty, like a batter with three balls and no strikes on him.
4: Mr. Martin dismissed all this with an effort. It had been annoying. It had driven him near to distraction.
5: But I would not be moved to murder by anything so childish.
4: He had maintained always an outward appearance of polite tolerance. Miss Paird, his other assistant, had once said to him, Why, I even believe you like the woman.
5: I simply smiled.
4: A gavel wrapped in his mind and the case proper was resumed.
5: Miss Old Jean Barrow stands charged with willful, blatant, and persistent attempts to destroy the efficiency and system of F and S. It is competent, material, and relevant to review her advent and rise to power.
4: Mr. Martin had got the story from Miss Paird, who seemed always able to find things out. According to her, Mrs. Barrows had met Mr. Fitwiler at a party. She had rescued him from the embraces of a powerfully built, drunken man who had mistaken Mr. Fitwiler, the president of F and S, for a famous retired Middle Western football coach. She had led him to a sofa and somehow worked upon him a monstrous magic. The aging gentleman had jumped to the conclusion there and then that this was a woman of singular attainments, equipped to bring out the best in him and the firm.
5: A week later, he had introduced her into F&S as his special advisor. On that day, confusion got its foot in the door.
4: After Miss Tyson, Mr. Brundage, and Mr. Bartlett had been fired, Mr. Munson had taken his hat and stalked out mailing in his resignation later. And then...
5: Old Roberts had been emboldened to speak to Mr. Fitweiler. He mentioned that Mr. Munson's department had been a little disrupted, and hadn't they perhaps better resume the old system there?
1: Certainly not. I have the greatest faith in Mrs. Barrow's ideas. They require a little seasoning. A little seasoning is all. Mr. Roberts had given it up.
4: Mr. Martin reviewed in detail all the changes wrought by Mrs. Barrows. She had begun chipping at the cornices of the firm's edifice, and now she was swinging at the foundation stones with a pickaxe. Mr. Martin came now, in his summing up, to the afternoon of Monday...
5: November second, 1942, just one week ago. On that day, at 3 p.m., Mrs. Barrows bounced into my office...
4: Boo! <laughs> Are you
6: scraping around the bottom of the pickle barrel?
4: Mr. Martin had looked at her from under his green eye shade, saying nothing. She had begun to wander about the office, taking it in with her great popping eyes. She demanded suddenly Do you
6: really need all these filing cabinets? Mr. Martin's heart had jumped.
5: Each of these files plays an indispensable part in the system of F and S.
6: Well, don't tear up the pea patch, but you sure have got a lot
4: of fine scrap in here. Her pickaxe was on the upswing, poised for the first blow. It
5: could no longer be doubted that the finger was on my beloved department.
4: It had not come yet. There was no blue memo from the enchanted Mr. Fitwiler bearing nonsensical instructions deriving from that obscene woman, but there was no doubt in his mind that one would be forthcoming. He must act quickly. Already a precious week had gone by... Mr. Martin stood up in his living room still holding his milk glass and said to himself, "Gentlemen of the
5: jury, I demand the death penalty for this horrible person."
4: The next day, Mr. Martin followed his routine as usual. He polished his glasses more often and once sharpened an already sharp pencil, but not even Miss Paired noticed. Only once did he catch sight of his victim. She swept past him in the hall with a patronizing... Hi. At 5.30, he walked home, as usual, and had a glass of milk, as usual. He had never drunk anything stronger in his life unless you could count ginger ale. The late Sam Schlosser, the S of F&S, had praised Mr. Martin at a staff meeting several years before for his temperate habits.
5: Mr. Schlosser said... "'Our most efficient worker neither drinks nor smokes. "'The results speak for themselves.'
4: "'Mr. Fitwiler had sat by, nodding approval. "'Mr. Martin was still thinking about that red-letter day "'as he walked over to the shafts on Fifth Avenue near 46th Street. "'He got there, as he always did, at eight o'clock. "'He finished his dinner and the financial page of the Sun "'at a quarter to nine, as he always did.' It was his custom after dinner to take a walk. This time he walked down Fifth Avenue at a casual pace. His gloved hands felt moist and warm, his forehead cold. He transferred the camels from his overcoat to a jacket pocket, Mrs. Barrows smoked only Luckies. It was his idea to puff a few puffs on a camel after the rubbing out, stub it out in the ashtray holding her lipstick-stained Lucky's, and thus drag a small red herring across the trail. But... Perhaps
5: it's not a good idea. I- it will take time. I might even choke.
4: Too loudly. Mr. Martin had never seen the house on West 12th Street where Mrs. Barrows lived, but fortunately he had a clear enough picture of it.
5: She bragged to everybody about her ducky first-floor apartment (laughs) in the perfectly darling three-story red brick.
4: There would be no doorman or other attendants, just the tenants of the second and third floors. If he ran into anybody, he would simply have to place the rubbing out of Mrs. Old Jean Barrows in the inactive file forever. The same thing would hold true if there was someone in her apartment.
5: In that case, I would just say that I had been passing by, recognized her charming house, thought to drop in.
4: It was 18 minutes after 9 when Mr. Martin turned into 12th Street... There was no one within fifty paces when he came to the house halfway down the block. He was up the steps and in the small vestibule in no time, pressing the bell under the card that said Mrs. Old Jean Barrows. When the clicking in the lock started, he jumped forward against the door. He got inside fast, closing the door behind him. A door opened down the hall in the wall on the right. He went toward it swiftly on tiptoe.
6: Well,
4: for God's sake, look who's here. <laughs> Mrs. Barrow's braying laugh rang out like the report of a shotgun. He rushed past her like a football tackle, bumping her. Hey, quit shoving.
6: What's after you?
4: Well, you're as jumpy as a goat. I'll take your coat. <laughs> he found he was unable to speak. His heart was wheezing in his throat. I, yes. No, no, I'll put it here. He took off his coat and put it on a chair near the door. Your hat and gloves, too. You're in a lady's house. He put his hat on top of the coat. Mrs. Barrows seemed larger than he had thought. He kept his gloves
5: on. I was passing by. I recognized...
6: Is there anyone here? (laughs) Oh, no. We're all alone. "'You're as white as a sheet, you funny man. "'Whatever's come over you? "'I'll mix you a toddy. "'Scotch
4: and soda be all right? (laughs) "'Hey, but say, you don't drink, do you?' "'She turned and gave him her amused look "'on her way to the kitchen.' Mr. Martin pulled himself together. He heard himself say... A uh, scotch and soda will be all right. Mr. Martin looked quickly around the living room for the weapon. He had counted on finding one there. There were andirons and a poker and something in a corner that looked like an Indian club.
5: None of them would do. It can't be that way.
4: On a desk lay a metal paper knife with an ornate handle. Is it sharp enough? He reached for it and knocked over a small brass jar. Stamps spilled out of it and it fell to the floor with a clatter.
6: Hey, are you tearing up the pea patch?
4: Mr. Martin gave a strange laugh. Ha ha ha. Picking up the knife, he d- tried its point against his left wrist. Blunt. It won't do. When Mrs. Barrows reappeared, carrying two highballs, Mr. Martin, standing there with his gloves on, became acutely conscious of the fantasy he had wrought. Cigarettes in his pocket? A drink prepared for him?
5: It's all too grossly improbable. More than that, it's
4: impossible. Somewhere in the back of his mind, a vague idea stirred. Sprouted. For
6: heaven's sake, take off those
4: gloves. I always wear them in the house. The idea began to bloom, strange and wonderful. Come
6: over here, you
4: odd little man. She put the glasses on the coffee table and sat on the sofa. Mr. Martin went over and sat beside her. She handed him his drink. It was difficult getting a cigarette out of the pack of camels, but he managed it. She held a match for him.
6: <laughs> well,
4: this is perfectly marvelous. You with a drink and a cigarette. Mr. Martin puffed not too awkwardly, clinked his glass against hers and took a gulp of the highball.
5: I drink and smoke all the time.
4: The stuff tasted awful, but he made no grimace.
5: Here's nuts to that old windbag fitwiler.
6: Really, Mr. Martin, you're insulting our
4: employer. Mrs. Barrows was now all special advisor to the president.
5: I am preparing a bomb which will blow that old goat
6: higher than hell.
4: He had only had a little of the drink which was not strong. It couldn't be that.
6: Do you take dope
4: or something?
5: Heroin. I'll be coked to the gills when I bump that old it
4: off. Mr. Martin! That will be all of that. You must go at once. Mr. Martin took another swallow of his drink. He tapped his cigarette out in the ashtray and put the pack of camels on the coffee table. Then he got up. She stood glaring at him. He walked over and put on his hat and coat and laid an index finger against his lips.
5: Not. "'A word about this?' "'Really?' "'I'm sitting in the catbird seat.'
4: He stuck his tongue out at her and left. Nobody saw him go. Mr. Martin got to his apartment walking well before eleven. No one saw him go in. He had two glasses of milk after brushing his teeth and he felt elated.' It wasn't tipsiness, because he hadn't been tipsy. Anyway, the walk had worn off all effects of the whiskey. He got in bed and read a magazine for a while. He was asleep before midnight. Mr. Martin got to the office at 8.30 the next morning, as usual. At a quarter to nine, old Jean Barrows, who had never before arrived at work before ten, swept into his office. I'm reporting
6: to Mr. Fitwiler now. If he turns you over to the police, it's no
4: more than you deserve.
6: (gasps) I beg your pardon?
4: Mrs. Barrows snorted and bounced out of the room into Mr. Fitwiler's office, leaving Miss Paird and Joey Hart staring after her.
5: What's the matter with that old devil now? I have no
4: idea. Mr. Martin resumed his work. The other two looked at him and then at each other, They could hear Mrs. Barrows yelling, but she was not braying. Forty-five minutes later, Mrs. Barrows left the president's office and went into her own, shutting the door. It wasn't until half an hour later that Mr. Fitwiler sent for Mr. Martin. The head of the filing department, neat, quiet, attentive, stood in front of the old man's desk. Mr. Fitwiler was pale and nervous, He took his glasses off and twiddled them. He made a small, bruffing sound in his throat.
1: throat) Martin, you've been with us for more than twenty years. Twenty-two, sir. In that time, your work and your uh, uh, manner have been exemplary. I trust so, sir. I have understood, Martin, that you have never taken a drink or smoked. That is correct, sir. Ah, Yes. Please describe what you did after leaving the office yesterday, Martin. Uh, Certainly,
5: sir. I walked home. Uh, Then I went to Schraff's for dinner. Uh, Afterwards, I walked home again. I went to bed early, sir. Read a magazine for a while. I was asleep before eleven.
1: Ah, yes. Oh, Mrs. Barrows has worked hard, Martin, very hard. It grieves me to report that she has suffered a severe breakdown. It has taken the form of a persecution complex accompanied by distressing hallucinations. I'm very sorry, sir. Mrs. Barrows is under the delusion that you visited her last evening and behaved in an unseemly manner. It is the nature of these psychological diseases to fix upon the least likely and most innocent party as the uh, source of persecution. I've just had my psychiatrist, Dr. Fitch, on the phone. I suggested to Mrs. Barrows when she had completed her a story to me this morning that she visit Dr. Fitch, for I suspected a condition at once. She flew, I regret to say, into a rage, and demanded, uh, requested that I call you on the carpet. You may not know, Martin, but Mrs. Barrows had planned a reorganization of your department, subject to my approval, of course, subject to my approval... Perhaps this brought you, rather than anyone else, to her mind. But I am afraid Mrs. Barrow's usefulness here is at an end. I am dreadfully sorry, sir.
4: It was at this point that the door to the office blew open with the suddenness of a gas main explosion, and Mrs. Barrows catapulted through it. Is the little rat denying it? He can't get away with that! Mr. Martin moved discreetly to a point beside Mr. Fitwiler's chair. You drank and smoked at my
6: apartment, and you know it! You called Mr. Fitwiler an old windbag and said you were going to blow him up when you got coke to the gill on your
4: heroine. She stopped yelling to catch her breath and a new glint came into her popping eyes. If you weren't such a drab, ordinary little man, I would
6: think you'd planned it all. Sticking your tongue out, saying you were sitting in the cat seat because you "'Thought no one would believe me when I told it! "'My God, it's really too perfect! "'Can't you see how he's tricked us, you old fool? "'Can't you see his
4: little game?' But Mr. Fitwiler had been surreptitiously pressing all the buttons under the top of his desk, and employees of F and S began pouring into the room.
1: "'Stockton, you and Fishbine take Mrs. Burrows to her home.' Mrs. Powell, you will go with them.
4: Stockton, who had played a little football in high school, blocked Mrs. Barrows as she made for Mr. Martin. It took him and Fishbine together to force her out of the door into the hall crowded with stenographers and office boys. <laughs> oh no! Don't touch me! Oh no! Get away from me! Oh no! Oh <laughs> She was still screaming imprecations at Mr. Martin, tangled and contradictory imprecations. The hubbub finally died out down the corridor.
1: I regret that this happened, Martin. I shall ask you to dismiss it from your mind. Yes,
5: sir, I will dismiss it.
4: Mr. Martin went out and shut the door, and his step was light and quick in the hall. When he entered his department, he had slowed down to his customary gait, and he walked quietly across the room to the W-20 file, wearing a look of studious concentration.
0: We've been listening to The Catbird Seat by James Thurber with Kurt Columbus, Timothy Crow, Janice Duclos, Barbara Meek, and Rachel Warren here on Trinity Rep Radio Theater. Well, it's quite a uh, set up, the perfect white collar crime. Yes,
1: absolutely. The, uh, again, I love the, the fact that we've got um, this completely nonsensical situation with Mrs. Aljean Barrows, um, and yet it's Completely recognizable to us, to anyone who's ever worked in an office, right? Oh, oh. yeah.
7: Me? <laughs> I mean,
1: it, it's it's not it's nothing that um, that you wouldn't know if a consultant came into your office. You'd know, you'd know right. exactly how how our our hero, Mister Martin, feels. Your,
2: your territorial instincts just rise. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> as if he imagines the perfect revenge, and then yeah. just. Writes about it, well, so fulfilling a lot of people's fantasies, probably about how late like to respond to some of their bosses. You know what, Bob? That's actually a really good point.
1: Thurber's fascinated by the by the little man. I'll put that in quotes. Right? He's really fascinated by somebody who's powerless in the face of a force of nature, like someone who, in her very name, Algene Jean Barrows, suggests <laughs> that she's going to run you over. Right, and Ooh. and here we have the little man standing up against the world,
0: um, and the world that's out to get him. You know, Barbara, did you have anyone in mind <laughs> no, I, I, I. <laughs> when you uh, took this character on? <laughs> no, <laughs> we would never imagine that. No, no that's not true. But you you you
1: said in in rehearsals that you worked in an office. Yes, uh, I worked as a child, young
7: woman. No, not a child, but. Um, and I was also saying that I never was in the front of an office. Uh-huh. In my day, we were in the... Since we're not on television, I happen to be black. <laughs> <laughs> in my day, uh, you, you were a file clerk. You were in back offices. You were not in front of the, where the public could see you. So I was never by the door. You know, I was in the back huh. of the room somewhere. But it, it's an interesting environment, that office
1: mentality. It, it it certainly informs your work as an actor, doesn't it? Because I, I think so. Do you think so? Yeah, sure. Because it because you, as Bill said, you you know you have this kind of uh, uh, Shakespearean tension in an office mm-hmm. that yeah. that gets writ large in drama, but in That's true. Yeah. In, in in what we do in day to day life, it, it's it's the same thing.
3: Yeah. Well, do you think James Thurber is saying something to us about the fact that this boss, this abusive boss, is a woman? mm <laughs> Hmm. Oh.
0: Mm. We have uh, noted before that his women characters, many times, are
1: very
0: especially in con- not very pleasant. As Barbara with the, uh,
2: little man, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a kind of a thematic mm. uh, constant.
1: Yeah, there's actually there's actually in doing some research for this show, I stumbled upon um, a, a piece of film, a short film that he made. I found it on YouTube called "The Unicorn in the Garden." Which is a beautiful example if anyone wants to look of his drawing hmm. style, very open-handed, and it's definitely the the harpy wife yeah. and the little man um, hmm. the under her thumb, battle axe. Yeah. That's what we used to call yeah. it kind of an old battle axe. Yeah, where did that come
7: from? I don't. No, yeah, making that up. No,
1: no, you're absolutely right. She's they definitely are. Um, He he definitely has an interesting view of women. Although in the next story, um, I think that uh, the 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 woman is uh, well, we'll just let the story speak for itself. (laughs) It's called uh, a couple of hamburgers. It was first published Uh. in 1935. It's a man, a woman, and a long, long road trip in the rain.
0: <laughs> Let's hear a couple of hamburgers by James Thurber featuring William Domkailer, Janice Close, and Barbara Meek here on Trinity Rep Radio Theater.
7: It had been raining for a long time, a slow, cold rain falling out of iron-colored clouds. They had been driving since morning, and they still had 130 miles to go. It was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm getting hungry.
2: We'll stop at a dog wagon.
3: I wish you wouldn't call them dog wagons.
2: That's what they are. Dog wagons.
3: Decent people call them diners. Even if you call them diners, I don't
2: like them. They have better stuff than most restaurants. Anyway, I want to get home before dark, and it takes too long in a restaurant. We can stay our stomachs with a couple hamburgers.
7: She lighted a cigarette, and he asked her to light one for him. She lighted one, deliberately, and handed it to him. I wish you wouldn't say stay our stomachs. You know I hate that. It's
3: like sticking to your ribs. You say that all the time.
2: Good old American expressions, both of them. Like sowbelly. Old pioneer term, sowbelly.
3: My ancestors were pioneers, too. You don't have to be vulgar just because you were a pioneer.
2: Your ancestors never got as far west as mine did. The real pioneers traveled on their sowbelly, and they got somewhere.
7: (laughs) They drove on for several miles without a word. Then suddenly... What's that funny sound?
2: What funny sound. You're always hearing funny sounds.
3: (laughs) That's what you said when the bearing burned out. You'd never have noticed it if it hadn't been for me.
2: I noticed it all right.
3: Yes, when it was too late. It
2: was too late when you noticed it, as far as that goes. Well, what does it sound like this time? All engines make a noise running, you know?
3: I know all about that. It sounds like... It sounds like a lot of safety pins being jiggled around in a tumbler.
2: <laughs> it's your imagination. Nothing gets the matter with a car that sounds like a lot of safety pins. I happen to know that.
3: Oh, sure. You always happen to know everything.
7: She tossed away her cigarette, and they drove on in silence. I want to stop
3: somewhere and get something to eat! All right,
2: all right. I've been watching for a dog wagon, haven't I? Hasn't been any. I can't make you a dog wagon.
7: The wind blew rain in on her, and she put up the window on her side all the way. I won't stop at just any old
3: diner. I won't stop unless it's a cute one.
2: Uh, Unless it's a what one?
3: You know what I mean... I mean a decent, clean one where they don't slosh things at you. I hate to have a lot of milky coffee sloshed at me.
2: All right. We'll find a cute one, then. You pick it out. I wouldn't... No, I I might find one that was cunning, but not cute.
7: (laughs) Oh, shut up. (laughs) Five miles farther along, they came to a place called... Sam's Diner.
2: Here's one.
3: I don't want to stop there. I don't like the ones that have nicknames.
2: Just what's the matter with the ones that have nicknames? They're always Greek ones. They're always Greek ones. Good old Sam the Greek. Good old Connecticut Sam Beardsley the Greek. You didn't see his name. Oh, Winthrop then. Old Samuel Cabot Winthrop, the Greek dog wagon man.
7: He was getting hungry. On the outskirts of the next town, he slowed down.
3: Hmm, looks like a factory kind of town.
7: He knew that she meant she wouldn't stop there. He drove on through the place. She lighted a cigarette as they pulled out into the open again he slowed down and lighted a cigarette for himself. Factory
2: kind of town than I am.
7: It was ten miles before they came to another town.
2: Tarrington. Happen to know there's a dog wagon here because I stopped in it once with Bob Combs. Damn cute place, too, if you ask me.
3: I'm not asking you anything. You think you're so funny. I think I know the one you mean. It's right in the town, and it sits at an angle from the road. They're never so good, for some reason.
2: What the hell do you mean, sits at an angle from the road?
3: Well, it isn't silly. I've noticed the ones that sit at an angle. They're cheaper because they fitted them into funny little pieces of ground. The big ones, parallel to the road, are the best.
7: (laughs) He drove right through, Torrington. Angle from the road, for... God's sake. On the outskirts of the next town, there was a diner called the Elite Diner.
3: Mm, this
2: looks... I see it, I see it. Doesn't happen to look any cuter to me than any other damn...
3: Oh, don't be such a sore head, for God's sake.
2: He pulled up
7: and stopped beside the diner.
2: Listen, I'm going to put down a couple of hamburgers in this place even if there isn't one single inch of chintz or cretonne oh, in the whole thing. be still. Pit- You're
3: just hungry and mean like a child. Eat your old hamburgers. What do I care?
7: Inside the place, they sat down on stools, and the counterman walked over to them, wiping up the countertop with a cloth as he did so.
1: What'll be, folks? Bad day, ain't it? Except for ducks. I'll have a couple
7: of... I ha- just want a pack of cigarettes. He turned around slowly on his stool and stared at her as she put a dime and a nickel in the cigarette machine and ejected a package of Lucky Strikes. He
2: turned to the counterman again. I want a couple of hamburgers with mustard and lots of onion. Lots of onion. She hated onions.
3: I'll
7: wait for you in the car. He didn't answer, and she went out. He finished his hamburgers and his coffee slowly. It was terrible coffee. Then he went out to the car and got in and drove off, slowly humming, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? <coughs> After a mile
2: or so, Well, what was the matter with the elite diner, m'lady?
3: Didn't you see that cloth the man was wiping the counter with?
2: Ugh! I didn't happen to want to eat any of the counter.
3: (laughs) You didn't even notice it. You never notice anything. It
2: was filthy. I noticed they had some damn fine coffee in there. Ooh, it was swell.
7: He knew she loved good coffee. (laughs) She knew that he knew she was annoyed.
3: Will you be kind enough to tell me what time it
2: is? Big bad wolf, big bad wolf, five minutes of five.
7: She settled back in her seat and took a cigarette from her case and tapped it on the case.
3: I'll wait till we get home. If you'll be kind enough to speed up a little.
7: He drove on at the same speed. After a time, he gave up the big bad wolf, and there was deep silence for two miles. Then suddenly...
2: H! G A N spells Harrigan.
7: Oh, she hated that worse than any of his songs except Barney Google. He would go on to Barney Google pretty soon. She knew. Suddenly, she leaned slightly forward. The straight line of her lips began to curve up ever so slightly. She heard the safety pins in the tumbler again. Only now they were louder, more insistent, ominous. He was
2: singing too loud to hear them. It's a name that shame has never been connected with Aragon oh, That's a me.
7: <laughs> she relaxed against the back of the seat, content to wait.
0: A couple of hamburgers by James Thurber, featuring William Don Kaler, Jadis Duclos, and Barbara Meek here on Trinity Rep Radio Theater. Uh, Was this Thurber's comment on marital bliss?
3: I love a happy ending.
0: (laughs) This time, she gets the revenge. She totally...
1: I gotta tell you, this may be one of my favorite favorite stories that we've ever done, because so much happens in the pause, in what's not said uh, Barbara was pointing out the, the the details that I mean, just amazing details. It's
7: wonderful, and they they know each other so well, and they've done this for miles. I mean, I just love it isn't everybody but on a road trip like this oh my gosh yes
1: <laughs> well and they they've got 130 <laughs> miles to go
2: we were saying it's like the the classic horror story setup <laughs> you know it's it's people confined in a in an inescapable place <laughs> you know this really? car in the rain <laughs> in the, the yeah, it's like With the, opening, the
1: wipers going it's like it. the opening of psycho except there's yeah. no, no no release of getting killed at the bates motel <laughs> waiting in their future it's just the car's going to break down and Oh my gosh, it's so incredibly and again
2: his economy of uh, of word choice and and uh, mm. the spare writing is just phenomenal. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. <laughs> Bill, you were telling a story the other day about Rosemary Thurber that oh, yeah, I really yeah. wanted oh, yes. our listeners to hear.
2: I, I went back in my uh, college days in uh, in Chicago. Uh, I wanted to, you know, be an actor of course, like uh, 7,000 other people in the area. <laughs> Uh, and there was a venerable children's theater troupe that uh, had been in operation in the area for quite a while, and they were holding auditions. It was uh, artistic directed by this wonderful old man, Lloyd Brady, um, and it was called the Pinocchio Players. And they they didn't use children in the cast; it was adult cast, and and we'd uh, or the the troupe would play for children in various venues. I auditioned. And Lloyd hired me on the spot. And there were two other people uh, closely involved with it uh, as producers, along with Lloyd. Fred and Rosemary Sowers were their names. And uh, and uh, Lloyd said, Liz, I want you to come over and meet the Sowers. This is in a suburb of Chicago. So we went over to the Sowers house, and uh, uh, the lady of the house answered the door. Her husband was in the background, this big tall guy, Rosemary and Fred. I walked in, and the first thing I noticed was there were a, a, an abundance of cats in, in the <laughs> house, these sweet little cats. And I uh, stepped further beyond the vestibule, and instantly I noticed all over the walls these full-size framed original James Thurber drawings, instantly recognizable. And I had uh, just become a real fan of Thurber through my intellectual cousin who always gave me reading lists, <laughs> <laughs> Jim. Um, and I was just the, – the second words out of my mouth uh, after pleased to meet you were, oh, my God, where did you get all of these unbelievably fantastic James Thurber drawings? <coughs> and, and Rosemary said, my father. I said, "Oh no! Uh, was he? Did he? Did he collect James Thurber?" She said, "No, no, he J- he is James Thurber." <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea, <coughs> especially because she was such a down-to-earth, <clears throat> hard-working uh, woman. They, Fred and Rosemary, had a couple of uh, small children at the time, and we used to uh, we'd take the show on the road all over Chicago. Uh, truck and station wagon. Mm-hmm. And they were just wonderful, hardworking people. And you'd never, you know, just uh, unassuming and uh, sweet. But Loved that's,
1: you, you know, that's the thing about Thurber when you read his biography. There's nothing, quote unquote, special about him. Yeah, yeah. And yet he's one of the great American humorists like, like Mark Twain uh, or, or, you know, any, anyone that's in that rank. He really does have something special about his writing.
0: You know, and you, you talk about his drawings and the thing when yeah. you see a James Thurber <clears throat> cartoon or drawing, you know it's Thurber right yeah. away. There's an yeah. economy oh. of line there that's very similar to his writing.
1: It's mm. really true. And an openness. And it's part of uh, perhaps the fact that he, you know, was going progressively blind through his life. But, you, but he, he gets the detail that is absolutely essential. And I and find that there's on. always
3: a really strong sense of whimsy. Mm. too in his humor that and, I that and, I really like
2: yeah and action the figures are always in some kind of recognizable action and a lot of of them are very uh, kind of aggressive and, and kind of you know violent in some cases
1: <laughs> <laughs> well he, and this is an action speaks then to the fact that he's ultimately very uh, dramatic in his writing i mean everything that you read has almost a dramatist's I kind of yeah. thrown into it. Well,
2: it, it come it, it his uh, the, the stories that we've we've heard today are all the the conflict the central conflicts are so strong. Yeah. And we all know that that's the uh fundamental element of drama. Yeah. And uh, it's just fascinating how he uh, he takes that uh, the writing for him and makes it so dramatic yeah, we, so we, we can have fun with it. We hope that our <laughs>
1: listeners are going to read more and
0: more James Thurber. Definitely. We know we are. We recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> what fun. You've been listening to Trinity Rep Radio Theater, and you can hear this program again and find archived programs at wrni.org. This program was directed by Janice Duclos and featured members of Trinity Rep's resident acting company, Timothy Crowe, Janice Duclos, William Dom Kaler, Barbara Meek, and Rachel Warren, in performing stories by James Thurber, A Couple of Hamburgers, Copyright 1935, The Night the Bed Fell, Copyright 1933, and The Catbird Seat, Copyright 1945 by Rosemary A. Thurber, used with permission. Trinity Rep Radio Theater is a production of WRNI and Trinity Repertory Company, Janice Duclos and... Emily Atkinson, producers, Kurt Columbus, executive producer, and Joe O'Connor, general manager, and Jim Moses, sound engineer. Please join us again next month. I'm Bob C.